Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we come to you today because you are a God of mercy and compassion and grace. We come to you, Lord, because you are a God who knows our hearts. You are a God of healing. And Lord, we come to you today because you have said that we can. And Father, I just want to thank you for this honor. Lord, my prayer is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I do pray. After 400 years in slavery, the Israelites are set free from Egypt, and they begin their journey to the Promised Land. As we know, over those 400 years in slavery, they had developed, they had grown in many misperceptions, misconceptions, I should say, of who God is. Is. They had forgotten their Savior. In fact, we find them in Exodus trying to contain the God of the universe in the image of a golden calf. Constantly in their own spiritual journey, they are wandering from the wilderness to the promised land, the wilderness to the promised land, constantly turning to God and then rejecting him once again. And here Moses is as he faces yet again another rebellion from this people who are called by God's name. And he there in the mount is pleading with God and he's saying, don't abandon your people, God, don't give up on them. God, show me who you are. God, reveal your glory to me. And that's where we pick up the journey that we've been experiencing over this past few weeks together in Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 5. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Are these words becoming quite familiar? <laughs> merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the, third, upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Today, that is the portion we are going to focus in on, the concept of visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Is that starting to raise some questions in your mind? A complimentary passage is found in Exodus chapter 20. Of course, we know Exodus 20 for containing what? Ten commandments. Ten commandments. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. And here God writes, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, again, we're seeing it repeated here, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those 
who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, I believe this morning we need to wrestle with this question. Does God punish for three or four generations for the decisions, for the choices of our ancestors? Are we punished for the iniquities of our grandfather? Is that the picture that God is offering here? In Deuteronomy chapter uh, 24 and verse 16, we find that Moses, the same author as Exodus, battles against that misconception. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16. And here the same author, Moses, writes, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Again, we're seeing a conflicting picture here. Which is it? Are we punished? Are we not? Ezekiel chapter 18 continues this theme. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statues and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The, sh the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So here again in these two passages, in Deuteronomy and in Ezekiel, we again are reminded, no, you do not suffer. No, you are not punished for the iniquities of those who came before. Are you thankful for that today? Amen. Amen. But if that's the case, then how are we to reconcile that with the theme that we see in Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 34? What does it mean that God visits the iniquity upon the children to the third and the fourth generation? Do the choices that we make, do the propensities that we have, affect our offspring? Absolutely. In fact, there's a growing field, and I'm going to just nerd out for a moment here, so if you're feeling like you're back in class, ignore me for five minutes and then we'll get back together, okay? This growing field called epigenetics. You're fascinated by it as well, aren't you? <laughs> and let's just read what it has to say here. In epigenetics, the fetus becomes a crucial node in space-time, simultaneously archiving the past while becoming the future. Because of this, the prenatal temporality is not limited to conception and pregnancy, but to everything prior to birth, grandparents, exposures, etc. Similarly, the effects of the prenatal environment extend to future generations. As the epigenetic outcomes of exposures in one's own lifetime become factors for future generations, whether through direct inheritance or through the social environment, in other words, nature or nurture. 
In epigenetics, what organisms are now constitutes the environment for future generations. If that didn't make any sense at all, let's try it again. <laughs> Genes aren't a fixed, predetermined program simply passed from one generation to the next. Instead, genes can be turned on and off by experiences and environment. What we eat, how much stress we undergo, what toxins we're exposed to, can all alter the genetic legacy that we pass on to our children. In this new science of epigenetics, researchers are exploring how nature and nurture combine to cause behavior, traits, and illnesses that genes alone can't explain. Does that make a little more sense now? Still clear as mud? All right. So we're seeing that these traits, epigenetics is revealing that these behaviors or these things that we have been exposed to, they influence the generations that follow. Whether that is through nature, whether it is through nurture, or maybe it's a combination of the two, the choices that we make or what we experience affects those who come after us. We see this clearly revealed, that's the end of science in case you had zoned out, Coming back together, we see this clearly revealed time and again in the biblical story as well. You see this behavior, these traits that continue to replicate themselves, such as in the story of Abraham, a man who we know was among the, the men of faith, and yet we find him pretending that she is not my wife, lying about Sarah because of lack of of trust in God's protection. His son Isaac follows in his footsteps and soon he is lying about Rebecca being his wife, a lack of faith in God's provision. And who comes next in the story? Jacob. Did Jacob ever lie? <laughs> Did Jacob ever not lie? Uh, of course he did. And I'll just point to the one where he again is claiming to be Esau and he comes before his father. He is doubting that God can fulfill the promises that were given to him. You see, again, it's this generational tendency to turn to lies, to turn to deceit when their own faith begins to falter. And we can see this pattern again and again, and while we are not responsible for the sins of our ancestors, we are particularly susceptible to their weaknesses. Maybe you've seen this in your own life, these funny little patterns you find yourself inheriting from your parents. My mom was talking one day about how a friend of hers was teasing her because she picked up a magazine, and my mom began to flip through the magazine, but she always flips through the magazine from the back to the front, always. And I was kind of laughing with my mom, well, yeah, that is a pretty unusual trait, like who, who does that, right? You always start at the front, go to the beginning. Until a few days later when I picked up a quilting magazine and I started flipping through it <laughs> from the back to the front and I looked down at myself, what am I doing? That's completely illogical. But these little traits that just pass their way through, and I would, I would love to hear some of your stories, some of the things that you've inherited from your parents, uh, both the positive things and maybe also the little, 
the little quirks that come along with that story. The nature and the nurture that affects us in our own life and our own natural tendencies. Now, for some of us here, we might be thinking about our our background, our lineage, and we might say, well, hallelujah, mine's perfect. Okay, so maybe none of us here. (laughs) But just in case you find yourself falling into that predicament and thinking there are no skeletons in your closet and none in the family basement either, uh, let's just look at a Bible text in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verses 12 and 19. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 19. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Of course, we like the the second half of that verse the best. (laughs) Many will be made righteous. And we're going to focus on that in a moment. But first again, painting that picture that because of the sin, because of the choice that Adam made, that choice has affected all of us. We have reaped that consequence. And his story has become our own. So the question is, how then do we break this cycle? Because otherwise, we, like the Israelites, will find ourselves continuing to perpetuate this cycle of a misbelief, this misunderstanding of the character of God, of who God truly is. A few years ago, I was at work, and I received a phone call. And the gentleman on the other end of the line said, He'd been going through some Bible studies. He'd really been enjoying them. He had been learning so much. But I have a question. I feel as though I can never be good enough for God. And I remember hearing that question and thinking, oh, what an easy answer. We know all those Bible texts. I know exactly what to say. And so I began to bounce from Bible text to Bible text to Bible text, assuring him that, no, God loved him. And yet, at the end of my stampede, he he responded yet again, but I just don't feel like I can ever be good enough for God. Men, don't they listen? Didn't I just give you those Bible verses? And so, of course, I start to go again. And here's more five or six Bible verses heading your way. And and at the conclusion of these Bible verses, he says yet again, but I just don't feel like I can ever be good enough for God. At that moment, I did what I should have done at the beginning, and I prayed. God, what do I say? I don't know how to get through in this moment. And I said something that I had never said before. And I told him, you know, sometimes we have an anxious or painful picture of God because of the relationship that we had with our earthly parents. 
And the man almost cut me off with, with excitement. Yes, that makes sense. Yes, that must be why. You see, he was raised in an incredibly abusive household. It didn't matter how hard he worked. It didn't matter how hard he tried. It didn't matter how clean his room was. It didn't matter how good his grades were. He could expect that dad would come home and the beatings would begin. In fact, one night the beatings became so severe that they ended in the death of his little sister. And unknowingly, he had taken that picture of his father and he put it on God and said, that must be who God is. I can never be good enough for God. It doesn't matter how hard I try. It doesn't matter how hard I work. I will never be good enough for God. Time and again, as I have sat beside their hospital beds, as I have listened to them reminisce, as I have heard their stories, Patients will often share their picture of God. Sometimes it's a picture of a God who is distant. Where is he right now? Why doesn't he care? Sometimes it's a picture of anxiety. I must have done something wrong. He must be punishing me. It must be my fault. And if I ask a follow-up question, I am almost guaranteed that the picture they painted of God is a picture they experienced in their parents. Those early childhood attachments, whether it be a secure relationship that we have in our, in our parents or our parental figure, or whether it be one of anxiety, whether it be one questioning whether I'll ever be good enough, whether it be one of avoidance, I'm just going to stay away so that I don't get hurt. Those pictures that we have gained from our generations before, from our society, from our family, whether we like it or not, that is the picture we naturally put on God. And it becomes a generational cycle that God is yearning and craving to break. 400 years in slavery. You can imagine what a picture the Israelites may have had of God. God, where were you? And then in the moments in the wilderness when God does not seem to show his face, God, where are you? And they resort to protecting themselves once again. What is our picture of God? Has our picture, too, become distorted? What picture of God do we see? You know, it's very easy in church to say that we see a picture of a loving God and a merciful God and a God who is present and a God who is... But in our time of crisis, in the midst of our struggle, what picture do we hold of God then? Destructive pictures of God can be passed down to us like hand-me-downs from society and the generations before. What then is the cure? In the dark of the night, he quietly stepped out of his home, fearing the creak of the door as he made his departure. 
The loud beating of his heart he often mistook for a servant or someone else who may see him. And yet, though the apprehension continued to grow as he snuck out in the secrecy of the night, he soon found himself at his destination, meeting with a man by the name of Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he begins this flowery introduction. Oh, Rabbi, we know that, that you are a, t- a teacher and that you are sent by God. And Jesus ignores his applause <laughs> and goes straight to the point. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Jesus, what are you, what are you talking about? Did you, like, miss all of your prereqs? Basic anatomy here, Nicodemus replies. How can a man be born a second time? Does he enter back into his mother's womb? How can he be born a second time? In response, Jesus simply reiterates, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You see, again, how do we break this generational cycle of pain and misconceptions of God? The only answer is to go back to the very beginning. The only answer is to go back to that place of birth. To go back and say, God, I want to be healed, completely restored. God, I want to start at ground zero. Not the image that I've been fed from the generations before. Not the image that I've received from society around me. God, I want to be born again. Truly converted. God, teach me who you are. God, who are you when you show up? You see that the key for us as well, as we struggle to experience the freedom of that new life, that complete removal of the broken images that we have endorsed, is to truly be born again. To come to God as that blank slate, willing for him to truly heal and give us a new beginning. In Revelation chapter 21 and in verse 5. Turn there with me if you would. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5. Jesus has a special message given in particular to John to give to each of us today. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things what? New. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Notice he doesn't say, I make all things better. I piece things back together. I'm really good with super glue. Instead, God's reply is, I make all things new. That generational cycle that you've experienced, 
I cut that short. That pain, that misconception of who I am that's been passed down to the generations, it's done. All things new. That brokenness that you've carried from the past, today you have a new beginning. That new birth in Jesus Christ. I'm often asked who it is in life that I respect most. And if I had to choose a man who I respect most, it would be my dad. But it's not because life has been easy for my dad. In fact, just the opposite. My dad was raised in a religious German home. German. <laughs> and his, his father you could probably characterize as a strict disciplinarian. My father is the third of fourth ch four children. My dad has only one memory of his father, at least from his childhood. And that is the picture of sitting around the dinner table as a four-year-old boy, and, and if he reached across the table, or if he wasn't using the knife and fork correctly, then that cutlery is going to smack across the back of his hand at the age of four. Just a father who is very distant, very absent in his life. And a father who, again, at the age of four, abandoned him and his siblings and his mom and went off for one of his multiple affairs uh, that he later had. Again, distant from his life for the rest of his remaining years, where he would not live in the state because he didn't want to pay for child support. My dad and his siblings, mom, were on welfare at times, just literally trying to make ends meet. His mom, rather overwhelmed by all of these life stressors, at times would be triggered, and at these times, she would then have suicidal ideations, which included the thought of driving her van with her kids inside into a lake, or driving them into uh, the overpass on a freeway. And every Christmas, it was a guarantee that she would be wanting to commit suicide. And my dad, again, would have to process that and work through that with her. When my dad was a little kid, his kindergarten teacher came to the mom and said, is there something wrong with, with Rich? Because he only colors in black. Just this pain that he experienced as a young boy. And it's a pain his own father knew well as well, because his father too had deserted his children and run off and had affairs. And so now, here is my dad as a young man, and he too having to make the choice of what life he would live, because you see, it's the generations. It's the father and the grandfather before him. And what I admire so deeply about my dad is that the generational cycle ended with him. Amen. If I have to describe my house, I could describe it in one word, and that would be authentic. I think that's what I value the most about my parents is their, their authenticity. What you see is very much what you get. I can never remember a time in my life where I asked my dad, hey, dad, let's go play, or dad, let's wrestle, or dad, let's do this. And he didn't say okay. 
He was always available. He and my mom were always present, always nurturing, always devoted. He was the father that he never had. And if you were to ask my dad what he credits this transformation to, he would tell you it's only the grace of Jesus Christ. When I think of how this cycle can end, I think of my dad. I see it in him. And there's no reason why, through the power of God, any generational pain can't end. That we can't experience that choice to say, it stops now. By the grace of Jesus Christ, I am going to look back at the cross. I am going to stop and contemplate not the picture that has been given to me by the generations before, but the picture that God himself is giving of who he is and who he desires to be in me. That new and that fresh image of God. In Romans chapter 5, moving back again and looking at verses 19 to 21. We are in Romans chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Verse 21, so as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, again, the question was poised in Exodus 20 and Exodus 34 that there is this generational uh, tendency And it lasts to the third and the fourth generation. But God's response is, but now thousands of generations who love me and keep my commandments will be blessed. Yes, the three and the four, but this is what I want to do. I want thousands and thousands of generations. And I think it was Carlos that brought up that thousand was the greatest term they could use. Million, billion wasn't necessarily in the vocabulary. So here he's saying, yes, this is the limitation. Yes, there was Adam. Yes, there was sin. But God, but God, the grace that we can receive in him. I so appreciate the lineage that Jesus himself chose to have. It wasn't a lineage of perfection. It was a lineage filled with murderers, abusers, a lineage filled with prostitutes and liars. It wasn't one you necessarily want to have on the, on the tree, right? And yet Jesus could walk in our path so that we too can walk in his. Jesus walked in our path so that we too can walk in his, so that we too can experience that new birth, that new ownership in Jesus Christ. True story is told of a young couple by the name of Nathan and Ella Messick. Nathan and Ella were married in the mid to late 1800s. And they were just a young couple starting off their lives 
together. They had just a little piece of land, not much to their name, and yet they had big dreams and hopes, aspirations for the future. Nathan had been saving for some time to get another horse for their farm. And so one day he comes to Ella, his newlywed bride, and he said, Ella, I have enough money. Can I go into town to buy another horse? Ella, of course, being the adoring bride that she was, turned to him and said, well, of course, dear, but while you're in town, I need flour and sugar and cloth and right, the honeydew list. Maybe most of us haven't experienced that yet. <laughs> a honeydew list. And, and so, of course, the next morning he rises up early and he gets into his buggy and he goes off into town. And when he arrives into town, he does his little shopping and then he finds that there is a gentleman, a horse trader in town, and he goes to him and, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm looking to buy a horse. Do you know of any good horses for sale? And the man replies, well, yes, actually, I have a horse that fits your specifications. And he took him out back to a paddock there and to a gorgeous horse grazing there. After Nathan checked him over, he said, yes, that's the one. I want to buy the horse. And they began to barter back and forth, finally reaching a price upon which they could agree. Then the man turned to him and said, but wait, there's a stipulation. If you want that horse, you get the boy. If you want the horse, you get the boy. Nathan's eyes veered to a bale of hay and a little boy about three or four years old sitting on that bale of hay. What do you mean I get the boy? You see, that boy's family had come across on a wagon train, and something had happened to the family. The story's lost through history, but all that remained was the horse and the boy. If you want the horse, you get the boy. Now, what is Nathan going to do? Yeah, send a text message to his wife, <laughs> a little selfie. <laughs> So a little bit before that, yeah. <laughs> How is he supposed to respond? Here they are, newlyweds, no children of their own. He goes into town to get a horse and flour and sugar and comes back with a child? How do you, how do you explain that one? And with his sugar and flour all loaded up in the back of his buggy, Nathan began to drive out of town. It took some time before he finally had the courage to look at the horse tied to the back of the buggy and the little boy sitting next to him. Boy, what's your name? He asked. Harry. Well, what's your last name? Harry. <laughs> the little boy didn't know. Nathan turned to Harry and said, Harry, we need a plan. When you see Ella, I want you to go up to her and tell her, Mommy, I'm home. <laughs> Smart man. Smart man. 
began to practice back and forth, mommy, I'm home, good job, don't forget it. <laughs> Soon they are driving that buggy up the front driveway and he can see Ella standing on the front porch, shading her eyes with a puzzled expression on her face. They stop the buggy in front of the porch, but of course Harry and Nathan are both frozen to the seat. With a little nudge from Harry, Nathan, I'm sorry, a little nudge from Nathan, Harry climbs down, runs up the stairs, grabs Ella around the legs, and says, Mommy, I'm home. <laughs> Without a second thought, Ella reached down, picked him up, hugged him tight, and said, Yes, my son, you are home. Yes, my son, you are home. That day that little boy got a new last name, Harry Messick, because he now had a new identity. He now had a family. He now had a fresh new start. See, that story is precious to me because Nathan and Ella were the first Seventh-day Adventists in my family. They are my great, great, great grandparents. And it's a story that's been passed on to me and one that I value so deeply for two reasons. It makes me think of the day when we will finally be in heaven. The day when Jesus will take us before the Father. And can you imagine saying those words to God? Daddy, I'm home. Yes, my daughter. Yes, my son. You are home. Secondarily, that little boy now had that new name, that new name that is also promised to each one of us. Whatever name we have carried, whatever has been passed down through the generations, or maybe what we have chosen in our own life in the past, God is saying it does not have to define you anymore. That does not have to be your story. You can be born again. We can experience that new life, and it doesn't have to be someday in the future. That new life is our choice to begin today. Amen. A new generation of healing. Today, do you want to join me in saying, God, I want that new name. Amen. That's your desire. Would you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, God. Lord, I want to thank you so much that you, again, have shown yourself to be a God of compassion and grace. Thank you, God, that we are not bound to the mistakes and the faults of the generations before us. We are not bound to continue this cycle. We no longer have to experience the pain. God, I want to thank you that today we can look to you and you will teach us who you really are. Not a God we have to fear, not a God we have to be anxious around, not a God we have to avoid, but a God of security, a God who makes us safe. 
And so, Father, we come to you and we are praying for that new birth. God, not pieced together, not duct tape, Lord. We are praying for that new birth, for that full and complete healing in our own lives and also in the lives of our families, God. Thank you, Father, that you are a God that shows up. And Father, may you continue to show up and reveal yourself to us. We thank you. We pray this in the name of your Son. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.